I love that moment when everyone sits down because you like the introverts sit down first and just look at you expectantly. The extroverts are like, I've got to see how many more people I can meet before we begin. It's a beautiful moment. My name is Michael Hands. I'm the pastor here at New Life Church. And it's so fantastic um, that you could join us here on this Sunday morning as we begin our new series. Now, there's a bunch of things we just want to talk about. First of all, we just want to create a moment to honor. And, and this honor moment comes from uh, the reality that every Sunday we ask for people who, uh, who would feel disposed to do so to generously give towards the mission of New Life Church. Part of being a Christian is we believe God's called us to be generous to our world and to the mission of God through the local church. And I just want to thank you so much for your continued generosity to New Life. Uh, we, we see week after week people continuing to invest financially, invest their time, invest their gifts in what God is doing here. The other thing we want to do this morning is give you a bit of a snapshot of what it means for New Life outside of just this moment right now to see the mission of God forwarded. How are we stewarding the resources that God has blessed us with? And one of the, the, the things I'm most proud of at this church is that we are a generational church. We're a church with generations. I think our oldest person is 100. Our youngest person is zero. Um, don't think you get much younger than zero. And, and, and it's beautiful that it spans all the generational gap between that. And part of that generational ministry is what we do on Friday nights with our New Life Youth Program. We're only on Friday nights, but on Sunday mornings as well. We believe that God has called us to disciple the next generation of world changers and leaders and influencers. That's not a social media term. It's meant to be like a, an actual gospel missional term for us here at New Life. And we have an amazing youth ministry in this church. Uh, my wife was at a local school this week talking to the receptionists, and they said, your youth pastor and youth leaders are some of the best. We love what they're doing the next generation. Our school is blessed because of what this church is doing with the next generation. How amazing is that testimony, friends? That's something to celebrate. So what I'd love to do is I'd love to honor, uh, we have a youth pastor in this church. His name is Jason Mountjoy. Uh, he's a phenomenal man of God, great communicator and a great leader. And we also, Jason's moved not only youth pastor, youth and children's as our generation's pastor. So we've uh, offered some more support for our youth ministry by um, bringing on board a youth worker. Her name is Courtney Lush. And Courtney is a fruit of Jason's ministry. He has uh, developed a Courtney. She's a phenomenal communicator, a great leader, and a phenomenal role model for our young men and our young women. Would you welcome Jason and Courtney to come and join me? And the reason why I've asked these guys to be here, you want to see snapshots of what happens in our youth uh, program, our youth ministry on Friday nights on the screen behind me. What I've asked these guys to join us is to let us know a little bit about what God is doing in our youth ministry. So Jason, a couple of weeks ago, you felt God say something in particular to you about a season for our youth ministry. Yes, yeah, so as you know, as a church, uh, we've been called and we feel led that we are going to read through the Bible for a year. Um, and we realize that for some of the teenagers, just picking up their Bible might actually be a foreign thing. And so what we thought we'd do is we thought throughout the year we'd uh, invite kids to read through different books in the Bible with us and just sort of journey with us and each day we'll send them out messages and really uh, walk through the Bible with them well. Um, and we, we've done this throughout different seasons in the life of New Life Youth. Um, but since we've come back from COVID, we've noticed um, our numbers have been down a little bit more. And so leaning into this, we thought, well, how are we going to do this? Like, what's, how's all this going to work out? And so a couple of weeks ago, we just invited our young people to say, hey, we're going to read through the book of Ephesians together. Um, and if you'd love to join with us, um, we'd love for you to write down your phone number with COVID safe pens and everything. And we said, write down your details and then we'll message you out each day. And in the past, sort of around the 40, 30, 40 mark is where we've hit and been, you know, messaging out our young people. But we had about 120 people in the room and 94 of them or 95 Amazing. of them That's said so that they were going to read along with us. So... Yeah, and I think it's just, it was just a really exciting testament. Like, you know, sometimes in these seasons of change, it can just sort of feel like, you know, a bit deflating or where's God at work. But just to see that and just see our kids hungry for the gospel was just a beautiful thing. So, yeah, yeah. that's great. And, and Courtney, you, we had this opportunity to hear some testimonies. So tell us a little bit about the good stories we've had come from this moment. Yeah, no, it was really beautiful. On the Friday night after um, reading through Ephesians, we opened up the platform because we had a sense that we should just, if kids wanted to share what God had placed on their heart, they had an opportunity to do so. And for the first two or three minutes, we all sat in pretty awkward silence while kids were nervous. Um, and then we had this one 14-year-old boy take the step of courage and he came down the front and he shared something beautiful and profound and what God had placed on his heart through the week reading through Ephesians. And then for the next 20 minutes, we had kids lining up, wanting to share what God had been speaking specifically to them through Ephesians. 
And it was just so beautiful to watch because none of what they had sh- that were sharing had come from Jason or I. None of it what they had sh- were sharing had come from you guys, the parents. It was all from God. Like Amazing. it was their personal relationship with God, and it was such a privilege to be a part of. Ah, praise God. God is at work in the next generation. We are seeing Him do something significant. So would you um, join with me as we pray for these guys and the youth leaders in our church? So Lord God, I pray for Jason, for Courtney, and for all the youth leaders that are serving diligently, the 30 plus of them who come every Friday night and Sunday morning to love and believe in the next gen. Father, we thank you that we're part of a church where we can see one generation declaring the good works of God to the next. We are thankful that you are doing amazing work in our young people. I pray that we would see more testimonies of your faithfulness. We'd see more lives changed. That in 20 years' time, there would be leaders, there'd be lawyers, politicians, mums, dad, bricklayers, doctors, dentists, teachers, who would be living out the gospel because of what you started in this youth ministry. Father, we pray your hand upon every youth leader, protect this ministry and protect the young people that come to it, that they would truly see more young people more like Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Can we celebrate these guys one last time? We have Joe, Chris, and Harper, who if you are a young person in high school, it is now time for you to head on out. Our youth ministry is going to head out. Let's once last time thank these guys where they serve and also everyone else for rocking up out of bed this morning. It's fantastic. In the first service, uh, not many kids stood up and then everyone was clapping them as they went out and then more kids stood up because they're like, oh, I'll get take that clap. That'd be great. It was a fantastic moment. Well, friends, today we launch into the first week of our series in the book of Genesis. If you are new here with us or were not able to join us last weekend, I would encourage you, go listen to the sermon. If you are uh, joining us online and you weren't there, go listen to the sermon last weekend because it kind of outlines a lot of where we're heading. As a church, we've committed to read through the Bible together. Now, some of you are only reading through the New Testament. Some of you are reading through the whole thing. And you might be like, oh, I just don't know if that's for me. Why are we doing this? Because we believe that these scriptures are love letters from heaven. And that for us to know the story that God calls us to have it, we must actually have read the story. We recognize it's not going to be easy. That's why we're doing it together. That's why we've got people who are sitting next to you, who this week, who today probably read Genesis chapter 22, and they were just as weirded out as you were. And you could turn to them and be like, what do I do with what Abraham's doing? And you can talk about it because we're doing it together in community. If you haven't read Genesis 22 today, good luck. It's a lot of fun. Something like, I don't know if I'd call that fun. Uh, and massive, thankfully, thankful for all those who are joining us online as well. We're joined right now by people in Canberra, from St. George, maybe Japan. I'm just throwing that one in there. Not quite sure. But God is doing something across the breadth of our family. What I want to do today is I want to begin by reading the start of the book of Genesis. If you want to read along, you can open up to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we read, In the beginning, God created. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your goodness. I pray that today you would help bring clarity to what you've laid on my heart to say and to speak from your word. That, Lord, I would not get in the way of what you want to communicate. But I pray we would be enraptured. We would be captured, Father, by your beauty. We, we would be inspired by a creator God. Draw us into the story of your word. Lord, I, I just sense in my heart to acknowledge there are some of us who are in the room who do not yet know you, who are joining us online right now, who do not yet call you their God. I pray that these words, as we unpack scripture, it would not overwhelm any of us, but we would hear the voice of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit speak. Less of me, more of you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, if I ever am elected to parliament, I know the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to enact a legislation to help manage something which I think should be counted as a breaking of civil law. Now, I don't think it's a crime or it should be a crime, but there is a pet peeve I have that I believe we should be fining people of when they break it or when they enact it or when they do this in particular behavior. Friends, if I'm ever elected into parliament, I will enact a law which says you are never allowed to talk in the movies. (laughs) One person raised their hand. That's awesome. The rest of you never go to the movies with me ever. Now, 
I'm not just talking about sinners. I'm talking about whenever you're watching a movie, there's a reason why there's a movie on. We're watching the movie together. We were extroverting previously. Now's the time when we're watching the movie. There is nothing more that frustrates me than when you're sitting in a movie theater or at home and someone thinks that that's the moment that they divulge their deep and meaningful truths and, and, and secrets to you. Like, no, 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 no. You misread the room. Even worse is when you go to the movies, and this is my own pet pave. Uh, if, if I legislate it, this will be the next level up. When someone thinks it's okay to talk during the trailers. Mm, that's the best part of the whole experience because so many movies are terrible, but the trailers are amazing. I love them. And there's all, I got to lose with people who think that I don't want to watch the trailer. I didn't pay $50 for one movie ticket to have a conversation with you. I wanted to watch the story. Some of you are like, wow, he's really outworking some grievances on stage. I am this morning, 100%. The second thing that I think it would, should be part of this law is that you are not allowed to come in halfway through a movie and ask what is happening. Now, some of you are laughing. I've sent your teenagers out. You do this to them all the time. You walk in and you're like, oh, so what's happening in this film today? That is why they're rebelling against you. They don't like it. They don't find it funny. They find it frustrating. Because when someone comes in and asks me, oh, this looks interesting. So what's the storyline so far? I want to turn around and say they paid Steven Spielberg millions of dollars to communicate in 45 minutes what you expect me to tell you in three. You could pay me millions of dollars. I'm happy to do that. Or we can just watch this another time together. That would be beautiful. Why? Because you can't understand a story from halfway through. Lord of the Rings is a confusing story about a guy's relationship with a piece of jewelry if you come in halfway through the story. You have to start at the beginning. Why do we say this? Because I think this is so often the problem that we have as Christians with the Bible. We come in halfway through and we wonder what's going on. See, we think that the biblical narrative begins when Jesus rocks up on the scene. And now many of us know the Old Testament. Some of us have read the Old Testament. But we have to recognize, friends, that the Old Testament, the, the whole biblical narrative wasn't just there for us to choose the parts that we enjoy. This is the story of God. And his story doesn't begin in Matthew 1. It began from our understanding in Genesis chapter 1. That's why we're reading through the Bible. That's why today we begin in the book of Genesis. You see, biblical literacy understands that the Bible, this book, actually isn't a book. It's a library. It's a collection of books. Now, if you were to pick up the Bible and to read it like your latest John Grisham thriller, you will be bored and you will not make it through because this is not a fictional work that you can read in one hit or cram down in one night. No, no, no. This is a historical, first and primarily, friends, this is a historical document written by various authors over thousands of years. Now, if you're wondering what's New Life's position, we believe that this is the inspired Word of God, the infallible inspired Word of God, but written by the hand of man. What does that mean? It means that when you read the Bible, it's so important that we recognize the different forms of writing in the Bible. You have the first part of the Bible, which is the prehistories and the law. We move into the histories. Then you have poems and poetry. You then go to the prophets. And then there's the gospels. Then Paul writes a bunch of letters to a bunch of different people. Then there's the book of Hebrews. And, and it all kind of ties up in this one guy's vision and revelation at the end of the book. Now, that is very different writings. If you read every part of the Bible the same, you will be genuinely confused. You cannot read the Gospels the same way you read the law. You cannot read the law the same way you read the poems because they have different intentions, different purposes. Each one of these books was written to a people during, in a certain place at a certain time. By the divine mystery of God's written word, the message still applies to us. But to understand it, we mustn't think that the writer of Genesis sat down and goes, I wonder what people in the 21st century need to hear. No, he was a product of his time in a context, in a place in history. We must first go back to understanding what was the original purpose of the text. Now, if you are reading the book of Genesis at all, if you're reading the Bible along with us, you will know the book of Genesis is a pretty difficult place to start. Pretty much because it starts really pretty and then it gets really, really weird. And then it gets weirder, and then it starts to get weirder again. 
and it, I've had people text me this morning being like, man, I don't know if I like the people in Genesis. I don't, these people are making weird decisions and I just don't know how I feel about it. So let me just give you some caveats here as we read the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is not a model for how you should live your life. Now, those who are laughing have read it and understand what I just mean. The rest of you are like, oh, I don't really understand. If you read the book of Abraham, the book of Abraham, not the book of Abraham, if you read the book of Genesis and you discover Abraham, Abraham has some great things that he does, some acts of faith, but predominantly he seems to screw up the story a lot. This is not God saying to you, live like this. No, in fact, it's actually us marveling at how often humanity gets it wrong and how persistent and faithful God is, not because we get it right, but despite the fact we get it wrong. You know why Genesis is good news? Is because it reminds me that God's got patience for me. If he has patience for Abraham, he must have patience for me. This is the truth that we read. So as you're reading the book of Genesis, don't go, oh, I want to be like Jacob. That would That'd be a bad decision. On that note, we want to be like a man who is written every single space of the, of the book, every single page. His name is Jesus, and that's our heart. But we find his story woven into the story of them all. Now, when we read the Bible, the greatest thing that we need to understand is the Bible tells us the story of the gospel. If you were to turn to the person next to you and say to them, what is the gospel? I wonder what they would say. Don't do it because some people would be really freaked out by that question. See, when we think the gospel, so often we think, well, the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that, you know, he came to die for our sins, and now I'm forgiven. That's a microcosm of the gospel. But the gospel is what's before you right now. This is the gospel. This is all good news. Now, when you read parts of it in isolation, you might be like, that wasn't good news. I completely agree with you. But in its entirety, it follows the gospel narrative of creation, where God created all things to be beautiful and wonderful and lovely, to what man did with that creation. We rebelled in most of the Old Testament. We read about man's rebellion. It goes on for a long time. But there's a reason why it goes on for a long time, because you're meant to long for someone better. You're meant to go, man, this story sucks. We need help. That's the natural reaction you should have reading through the Old Testament. So that when you get to Matthew chapter 1, Christmas is really good news. You're like, oh my goodness, thank God you rocked up. And Jesus steps in and redeems the story. He dies the death we should have died after living the life we could not live. And he, he is raised from the dead, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. But that story doesn't stop there. That's sometimes when we finish. Well, I'm forgiven. No, no, my friends. The story of the gospel isn't just about what God does in your heart, but what he's doing in the whole world. See, the beauty of the gospel, it says that one day God will restore all things. Maybe you're here and you do not know Christianity or or Jesus or the gospel. The reason why I love the gospel, friends, is that it doesn't just stop with the forgiveness of my sins, but with the promise that if there is suffering in my life, if there is pain, if there is evil still present, if I'm still struggling making the right decisions, then all I know is God's not finished yet. Because one day he will restore all things. He starts with my heart. He'll finish with creation. This is the gospel. And this is the story we're called to inhabit. It's the story of Genesis chapter 1. And if Genesis, as you read it, is confusing to you, here's a sidebar. I'd love to give you a resource today. It's far more interesting than this sermon or anything I could talk about. Don't watch it right now, but watch it later. That If you go to YouTube, you can type in the Bible project Genesis. And it does, the Bible Project is an organization that for every book in the Bible gives you this overview, kind of like this. Now, it's not demonstrated like that. What they do is they draw this beautiful picture and explain the narrative arc of the different books of the Bible. It's beautiful for people who have short attention spans like me. Because I'm like, oh, I get it now. That was beautiful. Go home and have a look at it. It will explain it powerfully. But what are we looking at today? Today, we look at the first, the first chapter of Genesis. And this is the start of looking at the first 11 chapters. Why? Because a man named Walter Brueggemann, we're going to call him the Brugs just for sake of expediency. Everyone say the Brugs. You don't know him. You shouldn't be that familiar. The first chapters of Genesis, he writes, are, of the mo- are some of the most important in all of Scripture. Let me say this again. The first chapters of Genesis are some of the most important in all of Scripture. Why? Well, I actually think this starts in Genesis chapter 1. 
Because what we find in these first couple of chapters in the Bible is, is where we're going to head today, is that they define the worldview of Christianity. What they do is that they help us understand how God can be reasonably believed in in a world that claims science and religion are in opposition to each other. It also suggests that all of creation and humanity are created with a purpose and a plan. And the final part of the, of, of the first chapter of Genesis, which we'll look at in a moment, is in Genesis chapter 1, we find the gospel declared, which is beautiful. So someone said to me after the first service, hey, you should kind of tell us where you're heading today so people aren't so confused. So if you're an A-type kind of person, you need to know the structure of what's going to happen, you can tick that off as we preach and as I lead you through. So you know kind of how long it is until Michael wraps up and says, amen. Amen? That wasn't it. Now, where do we begin? We begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we begin with these words. Bereshit bara Elohim et ve'et ha'aretz. This, friends, thank you. I got a bigger applause in the first service. That's fine. And I did a worse job. I, <laughs> thanks. It was just my mum in the first service, but she was stoked. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 begins in ancient Hebrew. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. I am not fluent in Hebrew. I took one semester of it and I sucked, but I remembered that. It's such a good flex this morning. In the beginning, God, most Jewish rabbis would pause right there because in these few words contain so much theological truth that it is dangerous to just waltz by it. In the beginning, God. This is a central belief to the Christian faith that we actually hold fast to the truth that we believe that there was something that has always existed and that from that something, everything created was created. You see, friends, one of the things that is so important about studying the book of Genesis is recognizing that it is pivotal for the Christian worldview. Now, when I say worldview, what do I mean? Best way to understand worldview is to firstly recognize that we all have a worldview. And secondly, that worldview are like the lenses that you look at the world through. So it's like these glasses that, you, that we don't really look like we're wearing, but these lenses through which we see the world. See, my glasses have a brown tinge to them, so everything is a little bit brown. That's just the lens that I'm looking through right now. Now, the truth is, every single person has a worldview. The question is, do you, have you intentionally understood your worldview, or is it just accidentally created? Every single person has a worldview. See, I studied uh, religion at University of Queensland. I studied alongside Buddhists, uh, Islam, uh, people of the Islamic faith. I studied alongside guys who believed that uh, the, Odin, the Norse gods of Odin and, um, and Thor were real. And we would talk about this. And what became evident is that every religious thinker and philosopher in the world believes that everybody has a worldview that is made up of a couple of different questions. And these questions are pivotal for us to know the answers to. The first question that makes up your worldview is this. How did everything come to be? How did everything get here? Everybody has an answer to this question. Oh, I don't know. That is an answer to that question. And that answer defines how you interact with everything. Buddhism believes in, in, in everything coming to existence in a certain way. The Islamic faith believes everything coming to existence in a certain way. Atheism believes everything coming to existence in a certain way. And so does Christianity. Friends, do you know the answer to that question? How did everything get here? The second question, which is so pivotal to a worldview, is why is everything here? Now, you go from the atheistic understanding, which says everything is a product of chance, to the Christian understanding that everything has an intentional reason and design. Two very different approaches to the same reality. Then the next question is, what is the purpose of humanity? What is the value of the person you're sitting next to? Are they just the final evolved form of a long period of succession of events or are they the intentional creation of a loving God? What is the purpose of humanity? Then one of the most important questions of everyone's worldview is what the heck went wrong? Now, everyone answers this. Very few people say nothing, but even nothing is a worldview. And finally, well, the last two questions are beautiful. How do we fix it and where do we go to from here? Friends, do you know the answers to these questions? This is why Genesis 1 to 3 is pivotal, because it offers us the answers to so many of this. 
It offers us the foundation. And in a world, friends, which is going to shape your worldview if you're not intentional, it is so important that we are intentionally being shaped by the biblical narrative. Now, I've studied other faiths. I'm not asking for a blind, unreasoning acceptance of what God has said. I believe the Christian worldview holds up to be true and holds up to stand its own against every other worldview that it makes the most sense of reality and invites us into the greatest, into the greatest example of, of the future that we could possibly have. Do you know the worldview that you're a part of? See, this is why Bereshit Bara Elohim is such an important belief for us because we believe that in Genesis 1 verse 1, when it says, in the beginning God created, that it is a direct decry against this reality that nothing could come from nothing. Ex, this is actually meant to be ex nihilo, nihil fit. And this is a, a philosophical expression that says from nothing, nothing can come. It's this reasoning that says you can't get something from nothing. Something creates something. It's one of the greatest justifications for the original causation of all things. That we believe in a God who existed and so something created something. We don't. We, we, we do agree that nothing could come from nothing and we don't say that there was nothing at the start of all things. God created everything. In the beginning, God. Why is this important? Because we are not the product of chance. We are not here just because things collided in a random way and just by fortune, suddenly everything came into existence. No, no, no. There is a very important statement that the Jewish writers are making here is that the creator creates creation. Now, if you are like me, have witnessed the world the last couple of years, there has always been a sense of uh, a tension between science and faith. And a lot of that comes from Genesis chapter 1. And we think sometimes that science and faith are predisposed to be against one another. And it was such a beautiful moment for me when I, was, I realized that actually it's not science versus faith. It's good science versus bad science. That actually God created science. And that science, when done faithfully and beautifully and well, I believe points back to the existence of an initial causator of God himself. In fact, the professor of, of uh, maths at, at Oxford University, John Lennox, goes on to say this, far from science having buried God, not only do the results of science point forward to his existence, but the scientific enterprise itself is validated by his existence. Why is this so beautiful? Because our faith is not blind. Christians, we do not believe, or those who are exploring the faith today, Christians do not believe in God because we've checked the, our brains at the door and decided to ignore the evidence. No, faithful men and women, doctors and scientists have found that there is gravitas to the human, to the Christian claim that God created all things. John Lennox goes on to say, Christian faith is the response of evidence, response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. So friends, I'm giving you permission to celebrate thinking. Faith is not when we check the brains at the door. It's where faith, it's when reality and what we believe about God actually match up beautifully that we can know who we believe in and why. This is what it means for God to have created the world. We can believe this and I want to testify that this is the greatest scientific claim of Genesis chapter 1 and one that is backed up by faithful faithful scientists like John Lennox and others. However, today, I'm not a scientist. So if this was going to be for the next 12 or so minutes, a conversation on science, you would be incredibly bored and probably want to leave. So I'm not going to continue today making this a science lecture. But if you are wanting to know more about the scientific explanation behind the existence of God, pull out your phones and feel free to just take a picture of this right now. On the screen are a list of books that have been helpful in my formation and understanding how science and religion are not opposite. You have Gunning for God by John Lennox, Reason for God by Tim Keller, even faithful uh, female leaders like Amy or Ewing, Can I Trust the Bible? These guys have been writing and testified as leaders in the world of reason, science, and apologetics of our faith. But why are we not going to make Genesis chapter 1 a science lesson? Chiefly, because I do not believe Genesis chapter 1 is making a scientific argument. It's making a theological one. Now, I want to let you know today, I recognize some of you in this room are down here, and you believe that 
everything kind of came to by chance. There was no initial causator in, in God. And, and thank you for coming and joining us today. But there are others who are right down the other end of the spectrum who are saying, no, Genesis chapter 1, the world was created in six days and on the seventh day God rested. That's a scientific truth. Now, what is crucial, and I want to be clear here, to the historic Orthodox Christian faith is not six-day creation. It's not old earth or young earth creation. What is, what is important to historic um, Orthodox Christianity is this, that God created everything and that man is the intentional created image of God. Now, those two things we hold as indisputable truth as Christians and everything else we go, hey, we need to let science inform us. But Genesis chapter 1 was not written as a scientific apologetic document. Chiefly, we know this because the Hebrews were not practicing the science that we are claiming to defend against. That was not the world that this was spoken into. See, does science back the creator, that God created all things? Yes, it does, but it's not the focus of Genesis chapter 1. The focus of Genesis chapter 1 is this. There is an intentional creator who formed everything on purpose and as divine part of his will. The Bruges, as we have come to know him, says this. This text, Genesis chapter 1, it's not an abstract statement about the origin of the universe. Rather, it is a theological and pastoral statement addressed to a real historic problem. What is the real historic problem that Genesis chapter 1 seems to talk about? Well, let's look at the text. What we're going to do is look at the text, find out who it was written to originally, and find the truth that is still true for us today. You see, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Beautiful. And Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 forwards the narrative. We read this. Now the earth was formless. Everyone say formless. Beautiful. And empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, this is an important text for us understanding not the scientific claim of this, but the theological claim. When we read words in Scripture like the earth was formless, empty, darkness and waters, the deep, these are actually words of deep symbolic truth for the Israelite people and for us. Now, I'm not saying they weren't literal. I'm meaning that there is a deeper purpose to them than just a literal translation. They are symbolic of a greater reality. In the Old Testament, whenever you read words like water or darkness or formless or empty, what it's actually connoting is the chaotic forces of our world. It's actually meant to be symbolic of things that are working in chaos and disorder. Now, hands up if you have a teenager. So you know what chaos is, right? If you've tried to drive anywhere in Brisbane, which I used to do all the time, you'd know what chaos is. Chaos is frustrating. Chaos works against us. We live in a chaotic world. And, and these things are meant to be seen in opposition to the forces of God and the people of God. You see this all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Psalm 124, we read the, the psalmist say this, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us. See, what had happened? What would happen if the Lord wasn't on your side? We skip down to verse four. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waves would have swept us away. See, back in those times, the ocean and the sea weren't seen as something to jump on a cruise lighter and enjoy. They were seen as scary things, things that kind of personified the evil in the world. This is what the water indicated. We read again in Noah and the flood, the water and the heavens that God separated, what happens, are brought back crashing together in an undoing of all creation that God can recreate again. In Jonah and the storm, where is Jonah thrown because of his disobedience? He's thrown into the waters of the deep. This is not saying that that didn't happen, not saying anything about the literal translation. I'm talking about the symbolic beauty of it. Then we go to the New Testament, and what do we find? Every time the disciples cry out for Jesus, where are they? In a storm, on the water, in chaos. When Jesus says, build your life upon the rock, it's to prevent what washing you away? Water. See, these things, uh, not saying they didn't happen, it's so important to recognize their symbolic beauty. And we read the greatness of this in Revelation 21. When God comes to instigate his new heaven and new earth, what does he say will no longer be? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, does that mean that when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any beaches? No. 
We're getting tans, friends. We're going to surf. It's going to be great for all of us to live on the Gold Coast. Praise God. If you don't live near a beach, enjoy heaven. You'll love it. What is being said when it says there's no longer any sea? There is no longer any chaos. There will no longer be any forces working against the force of God. This is a beautiful truth. And it was a beautiful truth for the Israelites. How does God respond to the darkness, to the waters? Let, we read in Genesis 1 verse 3 to 5, and God responded to what he was hovering over. Let there be, let there be, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. Now, on the next day, God says, let land form. Now, what comes out of the land? The land pushes the waters down. God brings order out of chaos. God brings beauty out of chaos. God establishes a creation of ordered beauty in opposition to what could have been chaotic. This is the nature of God. This is the beauty of God. And this is so important. Now, why is it important? Well, first of all, who wrote Genesis? Who wrote Genesis? Now, one lot of people will say Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis at Mount Sinai. Great. Well, let's just talk about who he would have been writing to if Moses wrote Genesis. In Mount, around Mount Sinai were millions of Israelite people. For those of you who are not aware, this, this happened, uh, Mount Sinai happened in the book of Exodus after they were delivered out of Egypt. And out of Egypt, they were slaves for 450 years. They come out of Egypt, they don't have an identity. They are formless and empty of direction. And they've come from a chaotic moment. Where have they come through? The Red Sea, the waters. And the waters have, de- have consumed the Egyptian army. Into this moment of chaos, into this moment of formless emptiness, Moses writing Genesis or maybe orally delivering Genesis, what, what does this say to them? Hey, in the beginning, God hovered over the waters and there was darkness and there was deep. But let me tell you what God did. He said, let there be light and the darkness receded. This is good news. This is good news to a people who have known only chaos and oppression. Now, another group of people might suggest that Genesis was actually written 600 BC in the time of the Babylonian exile. Okay, well, let's just think about what was happening then. In the Babylonian exile, you had Israel had been taken over by Babylon. All their leaders were either killed or sent away. They are formless. They are without direction and identity. And here they recall the story of Genesis chapter 1. Oh, was it a literal translation? That wasn't the chief question they were asking. What is the God we can trust in our moment of chaos? A God who brings order and beauty out of that which the world meant for evil. This is the truth of Genesis chapter 1. This is so beautiful, friends. Why? Because are not your worlds chaotic? Some of you have come here today and the pressure of finance, of family, of health, it just feels a little much. We read Genesis 1 and we read of a creator whose longing is to draw order and beauty out. And then every day, what does he do? He wants to call it good. And so where things in our world are not good, are not ordered and are not beautiful, these are opportunities for the hand of God to move. For this is who God is. This is the beauty of Genesis chapter 1. Friends, this, this wasn't a text trying to decry against Richard Dawkins. He wasn't around. This is a text that is a counter-narrative to everything that was happening. Friends, most theologians, and especially Hebrew and Jewish theologians, would call this a poetic proclamation. You read Genesis chapter 1, it's a poem. The whole thing just repeats itself in structure. It's like A, B, A, B, C, B, C, B, D. It's beautiful. This poem is an act of worship that the Israelites declare whenever they gather to remind themselves of the glory and the goodness of God that they are all created by him and from him. And why is this a counter-narrative? Because the religions of those days said that we were created very differently. See, if we go to just the, the 600 BC option, let's say it was written then, well, the dominant religion of that day was Babylon's. The Babylonian religion in 1800 um, AD, a couple of hundred years ago, they found the creation story of the Babylonians. It's called the Enuma Elish. You're going to sound so smart when you go to work tomorrow. You're going to be talking Hebrew, speaking Babylonian. It's going to be amazing. The Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish was the creation story dominating the world at the time of the Jewish exile. Now, the Enuma Elish said that creation was the product of chaotic violence between gods that created humanity and the world as an accident of their ill will and intent. 
That's the dominant narrative of that time. And into that moment, the Jewish people cling to this truth. In the beginning, God created, not out of violence, but out of goodness. Can you see how this is a better narrative for them to be living? But more than that, it's an apologetic to their time. When people are like, well, we're just an accident of God's violence. No, 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 no. You are intentionally created by God. These gods you talk of, they're not real. Let me tell you the God of Genesis chapter one. This is a beautiful story. Friends, this is why it's not a scientific document. It's a theological argument. But it's one which is good for us. Because it means that friends, in your chaos, you have a God wanting to bring order, wanting to bring beauty, wanting to bring life. See, the good news of Genesis chapter, the, the good news is this, that the intentional creator rolls back chaos to bring forth ordered beauty. We have to remember, as Timothy Keller said, the way to respect the authority of biblical writers is not to take them as they, is to take them as they want to be taken. Sometimes they want to be taken literally. Sometimes they don't. We must listen to them, not impose our thinking and agenda on them. That's what we're trying to do today, to recognize that this poetic proclamation We aren't seeing a God saying, you have to believe in six days or else. No, he's saying, you have to trust me. That's the point of the story. And we see this so beautifully that as the poetic structure marries down in day number six, God creates the jewel of his creation. In day number six, he he plants the jewel of his creation right in the middle of it all. He says, they turn, God turns and the Trinity has a conversation. Let us make mankind in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis chapter 6, sorry, in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God's crowning jewel of creation was nothing but humanity itself. Why is this good news? Because, friends, you are not the accidental creation of God's violent whim. You are the intentional creation of a God who to crown his beauty, the sunsets, the daisies of the field, the glory of the Swiss Alps and the beauty of the Grand Canyon, he placed humanity. This is such beautiful news. Do you know your worth? Do you know your value? Because you, we, humanity was the first thing that had God speak directly to it. Genesis 1 verse 28, God blessed them, the humans, and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number. He doesn't tell any other part of creation what to do. He talks to the humankind. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Enjoy what I've given you. Enjoy it. We should look at sunsets and be in awe of the beauty of God. We should look at the the human form and be in awe of the beauty of God. We should be enraptured every day, hoping to spend time in creation that we would do the chief thing we were created to do, enjoy God's creation and give Him glory for it. Friends, this is not a violent, angry God, but a God out of His selfless nature creates us to enjoy life. What a beautiful image. What a beautiful God. See, friends, humanity is the crowning jewel of God's creation. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're God's crowning jewel. Someone had fallen asleep, and right now they woke up to someone saying, you're God's crowning jewel. (laughs) Says you're right. This is so pivotal. See, the Christian faith, I believe, is not a faith that diminishes human worth, but elevates it better than any other worldview. Both male and female, hear me equally. We're going to do some resourcing in the next couple of weeks about how do you process the Old Testament's picture of, of, of women. And we're going to talk that through. We're going to talk about how we believe God has actually a high view of both genders, not a low one. And that's so important because we believe we're both created equally in the image of God. And what does God do when he wants to push back chaos? Let there be, what does he call the Israelite people to be to the nations? A light to the nations. See, not only are you God's crowning jewel, humanity was meant to be the means by which God brought ordered beauty to the world. Let me, let me just reflect on you how this marries out. When Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 5, thousands of years later, 
What does he say to us that when we become his new creation, we are? You are the? That was an easy one. You said it earlier. You are the? You are the light of the world. Out of these words, he goes, you want to know how we're going to deal with chaos? I'm going to build a people who will be the light of the world. You'll be a city on a hill and you will bring ordered beauty. Friends, that's what the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be. The Genesis narrative is not their narrative. It's my narrative because it calls me into the story as a new creation of Christ. I'm a part of God bringing ordered beauty into the world. This is God's glory. This is God's beauty. This is who we are. And then we finish the story with a beautiful understanding where we ask these questions. What is not good in your world right now? Well, then that's probably not of God. But we have a hope that one day God will redeem it. What might God be saying your role is in that? Where is there chaos in your life? How might God be calling you to bring ordered beauty to that chaos? Maybe it's a wave and a smile during a traffic jam. I know that seems fickle and stupid. I actually think that's way more powerful than we realize. Where is there oppression? Where is humanity devalued and not treated as God's image? These are moments where our worldviews should have better answers to the questions. Where we go, God is here and moving because I am a part of God's intentional creation. I'm a part of the outworking God's ordered beauty in the world around us. And you all know, this is the, be- the best part about this whole thing is this isn't even the whole point of the text. See, the story of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 to 5. Now, this is not Hebrew. Um, this is just an example of what I'm about to talk about. In ancient literature, not just Jewish, but in all literature, they had this form of writing called a chiasm. And a chiasm was a way of structuring poetic documents where the poem leads to a point and then works out from the point. And that chiastic point is where the treasure of the text is really found. Do you want to know where the treasure of Genesis chapter 1, verse Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 is? Where is the central focal point of the whole text? Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 to 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating what he had done. How does God seek to break back the chaotic oppression of this world? By calling it first to rest. We did this intentionally with our rhythm series leading to this point. Because friends, when you read the Genesis account, every day finishes with this statement. It was evening and it was morning on the first day. Do you notice anything peculiar about that? When does your day begin? With sun up. Okay, God, I think you meant to write, it was morning and evening. That's a day. No, 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 not not to the Jews because they really believe God was intentional. See, what happened is God ordered the day by starting with sundown. Why was this so important for the Jewish people? This is why if you go to Israel, Sabbath begins at sundown, not with the morning. Because what do you do when the sun goes down? You rest. Just hear that for a second. What's God's first call to his creation? Rest. What is God's first call to those oppressed by chaos? Rest. Think about what it would have sounded like to a people subjugated and oppressed by slavery for 450 years. And they hear God's word in the desert. And God says, you want to know what I want for you? I don't want bricks. I don't want mortar. I don't want clay. Here's, Here's where your value lies. Rest. What a beautiful story. To the Babylonians existing in exile under, under oppressive rule. And they remember this story and God goes, hey, hey I know there's stuff to do, but guess what we're going to do first? We're going to rest. To slaves who literally, their whole identity who was, was built and created on what they could produce, on what they could offer, on what they could do. God says this, you are not valuable. You are not valuable. Mm, You are not valuable. Uh, We will get there. You are not valuable because of your production. You are valuable because you are the crowning achievement of my creation. 
Friends, in the kingdom of God, your value doesn't come by what you bring from the table. Your value comes because you were created by Him. That's it. Yeah, no, but Michael, no, 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 no. He doesn't care what your degree is. He loves you. He formed you. You are His creation. And this is why Sabbath is so pivotal. Because people who understand the gospel, Sabbath deeply. They stop every week deeply that they might remind themselves the mowing needs to be done. My beard, need, my beard needs to be shaved. The kids need to be cleaned. The work needs to be emailed. But I rest. I pause. Jesus seems to double down on this, doesn't he? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The whole purpose of the Genesis narrative was to speak to a chaotic, oppressive world, that there is a God who values His creation, not because of its production, but because it's His creation. God loves you. And the beauty of Jesus was that the most chaotic thing that's ever come into our world is sin. You know what I mean. It's in your heart. Does not sin cause chaos? Guilt, shame. The gospel says this, come to me with that sin, with that chaos, and I'm going to bring ordered beauty from it. I'm going to bring, let, let there be light in your soul. Let me make you a new creation so you can be light to the world. Friends, if you are carrying sin today, the point of Genesis is to tell you, you do no longer have to carry that. Your chaos ends now. The formless void ends now. Become something beautiful. Become a child of God. Would you stand with me as we pray? Gracious God. There is so much in your word. There is so much in Genesis 1. We've barely scratched the surface. But I pray, God, that in this moment, we would just sit in the reminder that no matter if we've come today clean slates or with dirty hearts, each one of us, each one of us is equally called to be a child of God. We are not loved because we don't have bad stuff or we don't have guilt we don't have shame we're not loved because that stuff's absent we're loved because you are present and you always have been and you call us by name my creation Sarah come forward John Margaret come forward Mary come rest come let me replenish let me restore let me redeem and so we ask you would do that again today. And as you do, Father, we join in with creation in exultant worship of God. For if creation will worship, then we will too. Thank you for the beauty of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.